Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. This episode of the Talent Tank brought to you by three amazing partners, Custom Splice Off-Road Recovery Equipment, Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine, and Magnitude Performance, a mass motorsports company. Enjoy. All right, here we go. The Talent Tank, back in session. We're going to fill it up, get you guys uh, entertained, get the content flowing to you during this uh, COVID crisis. Today, sitting here, you're going to listen to uh, and get introduced to a guy that I really don't know much about, which is going to be fun for for him and me and all of you guys, but uh, Hunter Miller. People are going to say, Hunter, who who is Hunter He's the UTV king of the hammers. He's the, was that like king of the trail fleas or <laughs> king of the golf carts, king of the desert everybody, jet skis. Everybody just used to call me Cody's brother when we raced motocross because he was always a little faster than me. So yeah, you and your brother started the UTV race on, on Sunday out at King of the Hammers. You guys started side by side on the front row, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, we qualified one too. And, uh, wasn't really something we were expecting to do, you know, especially during my qualifier. I felt like crap, to be honest with you, but uh, came out good. So couldn't believe it. You know, the top 10 were all so close, you know, but uh, it was cool. You know, when we were getting ready for it, we we thought like, man, how badass would it be if we, you know, came out here and went one, two and it, you know, we had this big plan. And then when we qualified one, two, we're like, oh, man, that might could actually happen. Your reality. <laughs> So are you normally the faster, faster of the two or the more controlled of the two or the more relaxed of the two of, between you and Cody, or is he, you know, I'm definitely, uh, more consistent, you know, sometimes he's faster. Sometimes I'm faster. We're, we're usually pretty, pretty dang close. Actually, he can probably throw down a little faster sprint lap than I can, but I'm typically more consistent than him. And, uh, you know, last year in the works championship, he won. I think three races and I won one and we actually tied in points for first. So it shows you how even we are. You guys go one each way and you meet in the middle, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, we know how your race went that you won. How did, how did Cody's do? Cody's went, it's not that great. You know, um, I guess the, the race as a whole went fine. You know, it was like three miles in Cody, myself, Kyle Chaney and Mitch Guthrie were all battling. Cody actually went the wrong way right when we took off. You know, you go around the two uh, tandem bowl turns and you go and you make a left off into the desert. Well, he made a right like he's on the qualifying loop headed up towards short bus. And uh, he turned around and got right back in behind me. But I was able to take the lead there. We got going and and Kyle and Mitch had caught up to us um, within a couple miles, I guess. And we were all four battling heading into pit one, but probably three miles in, I hear over the radio, Cody said that they were out and uh, I tried to radio him to see what was going on, but had no idea. We didn't get him after that, but he had broke a rear shock bolt, which is about the most random thing you could possibly break, you know, not something that happens. It took him about 20 minutes to get it fixed and came all the way back up to ninth. So I think by the time he got going, he was maybe 45th or 46th, not to mention, you know, physically, not to mention all the adjusted time he had lost. And I think he had a pretty good race after that and made his way all the way back up to ninth. We're going to talk about your race later, later, later on and totally devolve <laughs> that thing. But help me out. Did, is it your brother that ran the 4,400 race in his car on Friday? 
Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, and part of that was because he got ninth and he was pissed, you know? So especially after I won, he, he couldn't stand that. So, and he finished really well with the 4,400s. Yeah. He ended up 15th and that was with, I think it was a little over an hour pit stop after the first lap, he blew up a front diff. I guess it was in the desert, but went down back door and two wheel drive got over to the main pit and the Maxis guys helped him swap a front diff, but I think it took him over an hour to get it done and came all the way back up to 15th. You know, you take that hour, hour out and he would have been, he would have been up there around the top five somewhere, you know, fifth to 10th, somewhere in there. Which is insane and eye opening and shocking that somebody could take a, a side by side and go show up and, and, and show up, <laughs> you know, not, and they're not cheap. They're not cheap today, but they're not, 400, 300, 250,000 cars either. No doubt. Yeah, no, they're definitely not cheap. Like you said, and especially, I mean, ours were, were pretty built, you know, I mean, they were the same. They started as, as completely bone stock cars and we took them down to the chassis and we made some mods to the chassis. You know, we, we boat sided them and stuff. So they'd get through the rocks. Other than that, really, they were all stock. They just had a lot of gussets and stuff in them to to build them up. And then we kind of lower the bodies down on them just for better vision and, of course, solid doors and all of that, you know, just for uh, strength and, and safety. But other than that, I mean, it's the same basic nuts and bolts as a stock car. But, man, the things are so good nowadays that they're competitive. I mean, you know, of course, in the desert and in the big whoops, you can't run – 130 like some of those trucks but i mean he can run 95 and in the rocks the things are small and fast and nimble so they can get through stuff that the bigger trucks can't really take you know did he winch much on the 4400 race uh, a couple times he got himself in a bind especially when he had two-wheel drive and uh i think you know on the second lap when they couldn't take bypasses obviously and he'd get to a spot where there were trucks you know everywhere and they were trying to take some crazy lines to get around. I think he had to use it a couple times. But other than that, I don't think he ever had to winch just because an obstacle was too difficult. I think it was always when he was trying to, you know, go up a line that wasn't really supposed to be a line to get around stuff that was hung up in the trail. Well, as insane as your brother's story is, Cody Miller and finishing ninth in UTVs and then racing the 4400 race on Friday and fin- getting a 15th out of that. This story today is not about him. It's about you. <laughs> Thank you for telling his story there for a little bit. It's team effort. Well, wait, yeah, right. What has changed in your life since coming home, holding the UTV championship from that event? Oh, shoot, man. Well, we had this pandemic go on and it shut everything down. That changed quite a bit. You know, we were, we've been kind of working our way up from the time we started racing UTVs, racing bigger and bigger events every year. And uh, we've had a lot of success over the years. You know, every time we step into something new, we've done really well and, and won most of them, you know, all of them actually. But like I said a second ago, it's a team effort. What what makes us so competitive is there's two of us and we're basically the same speed and talent, you know, and it makes it so much easier when you're not trying to do all this on your own, it's a complete team effort, you know, and if one of us does well, it's, it's a success for both of us, you know? And so, you know, since we got home, things that I guess a few more people know our names, <laughs> that's for sure. And some opportunities have opened up for sure. Um, especially going for KOH next year. Um, we've got some big plans we're, we're really excited about. Well, I think it's really cool what you 
brought up is the multi-car team. And we've discussed it on this, uh, this show numerous times and certainly it's really come to fruition here in the last you know couple months with the Miller Motorsports chassis and, you know, Josh Blyler putting one on the podium and then Eric being uh, in third place behind him. And they, those guys getting to share technology, the share shock setup, share tunes, even to an extent, share parts off their cars. And you see that like certainly uh, with like Jimmy's four by four or some of the Randy Slauson's bombers. But do you get that in the UTV world? You guys obviously multi-car team, you get to share parts with your brother. Do you find yourself teaming up with other Can-Am drivers on spares? Like, you know, you bring pretty much everything in the kitchen sink, but then realize someone broke some oddity part that you might have had a spare. Is the UTV world similar to the other offered world where you'll loan them the shirt off your back, try to beat them on course? Yeah, 100%. Um, Especially in the Can-Am team, you know. Uh, everybody's a big family and everybody helps each other as much as possible. I needed stuff at KOH that we didn't have. And every other Can-Am driver out there was perfectly willing to let us rob anything off of their spare cars or their spare parts allotment or whatever, you know, one of Can-Am's drivers that wasn't racing Corey Sapton even brought a full truckload of just about every part you could imagine and had it set up at the pits just in case anybody needed anything, you know, it, it really is cool. I mean, everybody, especially in the, in the Can-Am team is a big family, you know, and everybody helps each other and, and will literally give them anything. I mean, if I had a spare car sitting there, you know, a buddy needed it, I'd, I'd let him drive it for sure. Yeah. I'm one of those guys also, I'd, I'd rather, you know, we can be almost arch enemies, but I would rather beat you on course than beat you in the pit. You know, like, like that you're not even on, on the track. You had to throw on the towel. There's no fun in that. No, no fun in that. A hundred percent. I mean, uh, the guy that got second behind me at KOH, Kyle Cheney, um, is a good friend of ours and he's another factory Can-Am guy. And, you know, we've raced with him hard since 2016, you know, we battled him in almost every single championship, but you know, like you said, we want to beat them on course, not off, you know, there's, there's no fun in, in them DNFing and you finishing and winning that way. What made KOH so awesome was that Kyle and I battled the whole way, you know, uh, it really makes it special and, and makes the victory feel like, uh, something you earned as opposed to something that's just handed to you. There's no handouts out there, but I do get oh. what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then can am, I mean, gosh, they, they literally had almost all but one spot in the top 10. Yeah. I think, uh, I don't know about top 10, but top five for sure. Uh, Mitch Guthrie senior got fourth, but other than that, you know, they had the top five and, uh, they put in the effort this year. You know, they were, they were sick of getting their ass kicked by Polaris every year. And, you know, they're, I don't know the corporate side of it, but it's, you know, they've got quite the rivalry, obviously being the top two brands and UTVs and, uh, it's good for the sports, good for everybody. But, you know, um, the Guthrie's had dominated that event and, and Polaris had for, for so long and, uh, Canon wanted to win it. And so they put in the effort this year and brought out all their drivers and including us and it being our first year, you know, it was kind of funny because, I remember having the conversation with them that, oh, yeah, we don't, we don't really have much expectation for you guys this year. I mean, we expect you to qualify well because, you know, sprint racing is our background, obviously. So we should be able to throw down a fast, you know, two minute lap for sure. But as far as 140 miles of desert and rocks and something we'd never done before, they didn't expect us to go out and uh, do that well. We were just hoping for, you know, a finish for sure. And a top 10 would have been a win. But uh 
to go out and win it the first try is is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, wow. Yes, absolutely. Let's jump all the way back. Let's actually get get this going, and then we'll we'll circle back to KOH because there's so much more there. Oh yeah, you're in your mid 30s. Yep, Texas guy. You live in North Texas, Greenville. Greenville. Yep, just east of Dallas. Is that considered a suburb as far out as it is, or is it too far out to be a suburb? I don't. I don't know where the line of demarcation is between like. <laughs> And I kind of know the area like Rockwall and then out. Is it when you get across Lake Ray, is it Lake Ray Hubbard, right? Yeah, Lake Ray Hubbard. Yeah. If you're on the other side of east side of Lake Ray Hubbard, are you like, is that like rural at that point? Or you would still call it, Rockwall's pretty suburbanish. Yeah, it's fixing to say, I'd say, well, it's funny because, you know, five years ago, I said, yeah, east of Rockwall, you're out of that DFW basically. But now Roy City, which is, you know, 10 minutes down the road from Rockwall, is pretty much just an extension of Rockwall at this point. And Greenville is the next town, and it's the next one. I'd say another six, seven years that even to Greenville, you're still going to be in the suburb of DFW, you know. DFW is just expanding in every direction. And I remember McKinney, which is just north of DFW, Whenever my wife and I first started dating, she lived in Salina, which was just a little tiny town up there uh, south of Sherman. And, you know, there was nothing there. It was just fields. And now you go there and you don't even recognize it. I mean, it's basically like being in downtown Dallas, you know. I mean, it's just exploding. It's crazy. When I found out that a Texas guy won that race, I was super excited. And then when we <laughs> talked about this, you're like, oh, yeah, you're in Texas. Where? Oh, where are you at? And I'm like, well, I'm five hours south of you. <laughs> you're yeah. up there with the tornadoes and hail and the weather. No hurricanes. Though. No hurricanes. And I'm 30 minutes from uh, from the beach. So that's, I mean, it's not a pretty beach, but it is a beach. I mean, it's like brown water, lots of seaweed. Let's <laughs> get fishing. Yeah, I mean, drink beer, sit, sit out, cut donuts in the sand. That happens. <laughs> so, uh, but you've lived in Greenville your whole life. Pretty much. I was born in Dallas and grew up, well, I didn't grow up in Rockwall. Um, we moved out here when I was in second grade. Went to elementary school in Rockwall. And then second grade, we, my parents had bought some property out here in Greenville. I think he's, my dad started and mom started with uh, maybe 20 acres out here. And Eventually built a small house out here and moved out here. And my dad, every time a piece of property that was uh, touching ours came up for sale, he would try to get his hands on it. And uh, yeah, just kind of expanded our property here year by year. And my brother and I got into racing and and built our our practice course out here and uh, have hosted lots of races, you know, ATV motocross races and cross country races and endurance races, all kinds of stuff. Just Lived in the country basically as long as I can remember, you know, um, graduated high school right down the road and went to college down the street from here and uh, just now working in our family business on the same property. And yeah, the family business, you guys have a, it's a glass shop, right? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we do commercial interior specialty glass, all kinds of different things. And basically anything that meant to be decorative or pretty, uh, you know, that's the type of stuff we do. Not, not your standard, not windows or anything like that. You know, we do glass marker boards and which doesn't sound special, but you know, they're basically just really high end dry erase boards or like, uh, like office partitions, like guys that have glass offices, like usually there's usually some of that is smoked or frosted or whatever. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Have logos, anything like that on them. And how do you do that? Do you lay the glass down and like sandblast it like with a CNC machine or? Yeah. So 
when my dad was was running everything, everything was pretty primitive. You know, basically, if you wanted to put a logo on the glass, you take the file, you put it in the computer of the logo, you put it, uh, cut it out on vinyl on a plotter, and you apply it to the glass, you weed it off, you sandblast it by hand, and then you peel the resist off. Everything's kind of automated now. Uh, we've got big digital printers and everything, and, uh, you know, our sandblasting is all automated. You know, it's kind of really upped our game in the, our capabilities and uh, our processes for getting things done, you know, um, have changed. We do a lot of back-painted glass, which, you know, for wall coverings and, again, glass marker boards, same thing. Uh, that stuff all used to be you take a piece of glass and you put it in the paint booth and you spray it and then it sits there and dries. Well, now that's all automated, runs through a machine that automatically sprays it, goes into an automated dryer and goes out and goes onto a rack and it's finished, you know. So uh, we've come a long ways and the business has really grown, especially like the last six, seven years. You know, the business used to be run out of a small shop underneath my parents' house. And we built a 17,000 square foot building right over here next to their, pretty close to their house, actually, um, which kind of doubles up as our, our glass shop and our race shop as well. We've got uh, plans to expand it hopefully in the near future and possibly even build a separate race shop because it's getting to the point where that's taken over more and more of the glass stuff. And, you know, they get in the way of each other quite a lot. So, but it's nice having everything under one roof, you know, we can, I can go from the office and doing bids and straight out there and work on race cars, you know, and then back and forth. It's really easy. Well, I like your embracing of technology and I've certainly everyone in my life that has had a lot of success, they've embraced and they've moved on. Anything to free up the human capital from doing, I'm not going to call it menial tasks, they're baseload tasks that need to get done. But if you can automate that or embrace technology on it and free up your human capital time to go either chase work or chase bids or expand, dude, that's how, that's how you get it done. That's how you get ahead. Well, not only that, you know, having to train uh, your employees to do something and if something happens and you lose that employee that, you know, sandblasting, for example, to do it by hand takes a lot of practice to do a good job. You know, you don't think it's much, but you're taking a, a hose that's shooting out sand at, you know, 150 PSI and you're trying to cover a five foot by 10 foot piece of glass and make it all look perfectly frosted and even that takes some practice, you know, yeah, uniform, uniformity, yeah, right? For sure. Otherwise it's got stripes all through it. And so all of a sudden you take a guy that's been doing that for a couple of years and is really good at it. Well, if you lose him, man, you're screwed. But if you have it where you can stick it on a conveyor belt and you press a button and it goes through the machine and it comes out perfect on the other end, all of a sudden it makes your life a whole lot easier. Oh yeah, man. I bet. And consistent, you know, you take over qual your quality control goes way up. Your quality assurance goes way up. And that's it. I don't sit out there and do the stuff myself so much. So your, your dad started this business, right? Yeah. It's kind of a funny, kind of a funny story. Actually, my mom and dad were both in the glass business separately. And my dad had purchased a glass company and yeah, I may kind of butcher this story, but this is the gist of it. Uh, he had purchased a glass company that held a patent for a certain way of doing etched glass. And somehow or another, he found out that my mom's company was using the same process that he was doing. So he acted like he was a restaurant owner and scheduled a meeting with her, let her come in and do her whole dog and pony show and go through her products and tell her how exactly how he's doing it. And he said, oh yeah, yeah, cool. 
well, my name's Joe Miller and I own this company and now I'm suing you for patent infringement or something. And uh, I guess he decided not to sue her and she went to work for him and the uh, rest is history. I think I came along about nine months later. <laughs> so. Well, that seems like a success right there. Yeah. So, so your dad ends up meeting your mom through not suing her or not suing them. And he then may have sued her. Hell, I don't know. <laughs> there you go. I don't think so, but. And was she there in the, in the DFW area as well or no? Yep. She was, she, um, she's got, oh man, maybe eight. I, I could count them and tell you, but I think like eight brothers and sisters and they grew up in Grand Prairie. I forget how she got into the glass business. I think she started off doing like nameplates for, for corporate offices and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. She grew up in Grand Prairie and, uh, born and raised, never, never left. But your dad was a dirt bike rider. He liked riding dirt bikes, right? Or quads or no dirt bikes. So he started racing dirt bikes, like in the early seventies, I guess, right when motocross was coming to America, you know, back when they were basically street bikes with that, they threw some knobby tires on and called them dirt bikes. And, uh, shoot, if he was here, he could tell you the stories of exactly what he rode, but I know he rode a bull taco at one point and all that, you know, and he's got an old picture of him, uh, it looks like he's jumping a Harley. <laughs> it's kind of funny. They maybe have two inches of travel, but, uh, just backbreakers. Oh you man. See those? Sure. You're just like, Oh, how did those, I mean, they, I think they made, I think men were made, you know, a lot more rugged back then than they are today. They had to have been no doubt, man. No doubt. I mean, they're not on the same level today. That's for sure. But, uh, you know, we always had an interest in it when we were kids and when we lived in Rockwall, I think I was six years old and, my, and Cody was four when uh, my dad got us our first dirt bikes for Christmas, he got me an XR 80 and I literally could not touch the ground on it. I would have to kind of take off and it had a clutch. And of course at six years old, you can't comprehend how a clutch works. But, uh, I remember we'd come out to the, we lived in Rockwell at the time and we'd come out here to the farm where, uh, they had their first 20 acres. And in the past year, right across from where I'm sitting right now, he'd get me taken off out there. Well, I would ride all day long until that thing ran out of gas, not because I wanted to necessarily, but because I couldn't stop. I couldn't touch the ground. I didn't know pulling in the clutch would make it stop. So I would just ride all day long. And Cody had a little uh, Suzuki 50 that, you know, he was the right size for. So, of course, he could ride all he wanted. But yeah, we rode uh, rode dirt bikes as a kid. You know, that's all all we ever had. And you know, it's not like we raced or anything, but Greenville had a local motocross track and we'd go out there and ride and stuff. And we we're getting a little better, I guess. But again, not racing. We always kind of had an interest in it, but it never really uh, fruitioned. Well, my cousin came out. We always used to have Thanksgiving out here. You know, everybody'd come out and we'd have a picnic under the trees and stuff. Well, my cousin brought uh, her boyfriend out. And I, well, I guess this is several years later, we had, we had moved out here and my cousin brought her boyfriend out to Thanksgiving that year. Well, he brought three, uh, Suzuki two thirties, four wheelers. And I spent the whole day riding that thing. I hogged it for sure. And I remember my dad saw me out in the backyard and I was just like kind of bicycling it on the side. And, you know, I was having a blast and rode the thing all day. Well, he got us a couple of Yamaha blasters for Christmas that year. You know, we rode around the farm for a couple months and we're getting a little better. And uh, we tried to go out to that same local motocross track that we'd been going to for years. 
well, we're going around it and my dad's up in the tower kind of watching us. And this guy comes up to me. He's like, Hey, you know, how, how old are those kids? My dad, of course, is thinking, Oh man, yeah, he's about to brag on them because they're going so fast and blah, blah, blah. And dad's like, well, they're, they're 14 and 12 or or no, maybe uh, 10 and 12. And the guy said, Oh, well, y'all got to leave. He's like, what? And he said, you have to be 14 to ride on this track on a quad because it's AMA sanctioned or something. He said, okay, well, we're pretty disappointed, obviously, because we just got there. Oh, did I say 10 and 12? I meant 14 and 14. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, we came home and and we had met a guy as we're loading up. Um, His name was Tommy Little, and he's a friend of ours, still lives here locally. And back then he was one of the local ATV pros, you know. And he said, oh, man, y'all are leaving already? And we're like, yeah. Or my dad said, yeah, you know, they, they said they're not old enough. And he's like, I've got some property. I'm going to go build them a track at their at our house, you know. And Tommy's like, well, I've got a bulldozer. And we didn't have one at the time. So Tommy brought his dozer out, and we built a, a small motocross track here, you know, just pushed some dirt up, made some small jumps. And that's where it all started. We'd go out there, and we would ride and ride and ride and ride and ride all day, every day. And, uh, we found a flyer in one of the local dealerships that said the Texoma quad racing association, it was going to be their very first race ever. And it was in, uh, Lake Murray. I forget if that's in Oklahoma or Texas. I can't remember, but I think it's right there close to the border. But anyway, it was a cross country series and we went and it was real small. I think maybe nine people showed up to race it and, I forget we raced amateur class and my dad raced as well. He had a Banshee and I got second and Cody got third. And if you, if I pulled up the picture, you'd laugh, but we were little, little kids racing adults, you know? And, uh, we raced all those races and eventually the guy that was running it at the time, it turned into a motocross series, but this motocross track was right in the guy's backyard and he was just right outside of town, but still in the city limits. Well, about the third race he had out there, we're racing, everything's going going great. Well, the cops show up and shut it down because it was too noisy. Well, my dad went up to him and said, hey, you know, I've got a motocross track at our house and y'all are welcome to have races out there. So then for the next three years or so, and the series is getting bigger and bigger at this point. Well, for the next three years, every single TQRA race was at our property here. And so our motocross track was getting bigger and bigger and better and better. And uh, eventually TQRA got to the point where, you know, they'd have two, 300 quads uh, racing there. And and we raced it all the way up until 2012 and, and had simultaneously started racing the national events and eventually both became pros and, and factor riders for Can-Am over the years. But, you know, always, always kind of stayed to our roots here in Texas and raced that series. With all that driving, all that racing, all that seat time, did you learn to become a pretty good mechanic? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, my dad, uh, my dad was a decent mechanic and understood everything, but he made us learn. That's for sure. I mean, when we were young, of course, uh, I, I remember one of the very first projects we ever did was those two Yamaha blasters. He came to us with the idea of, hey, let's let's tear these things all apart and we'll powder coat everything and chrome everything and just make them into show bikes and we'll have the engines done and make them make them fast and all this stuff. And when I say he chromed or powder coated everything, I mean, every single bolt on those things was chromed and every single part was powder coated. 
and they ran off alcohol and all kinds of crazy stuff. We went a little too overboard with them, but you know, my dad and my brother and I, we sat down in the shop and we tore those things down completely all the way to the bare frame and, uh, sandblasted the frames to have them powder coated and, and rebuilt them. And that was kind of our first experience with working on anything. Pretty much at that point on, he made us start working on our own stuff, you know, and it started off small, obviously cleaning your air filter and changing your oil. But eventually, you know, we learned to do everything. And at this point, obviously we do all and have for years, we do all of our own mechanic work and prep work. Don't get me wrong. We, we have some guys come in and help us. A good friend of ours that from back in the early, early days of quad rating, another local pro is named Scott Dunn. Um, he comes in and helps us out quite a lot. And uh, we've got other friends that come and help us, especially when it's crunch time before races and we're trying to prep. But uh, for the most part, we do everything as far as mechanic work on our cars. Do you know how to weld? Cody does. I leave that to him. <laughs> yeah. Cody's actually a pretty good fabricator. And if I spent 10 minutes trying to learn, I could probably weld myself, but Cody's good at it and I'll pick up the slack somewhere else. <laughs> so I'm just curious. And then outside of that, did you play any sports or anything growing up? Uh, I tried, man, it's terrible. That's What's all right. funny is you, with sticking ball sports, I'm the most uncoordinated person you could ever imagine. I can run pretty good and I can run pretty far and pretty fast, but I can't catch a football to save my life. I was always in athletics just because, you know, I enjoyed working out and stuff, but our focus was always on racing and on motocross, you know, and, and I tried to take advantage of those school sports just to be getting in better shape, you know, but yeah, it's, it's pretty funny how uncoordinated I am yet, you know, could, uh, get on a quad and, and throw the thing around like it was all fluid, you know, it was kind of funny. Hey, what's that called? It's called kinesis, right? Where you kind of have a, a spatial awareness of your body and what it's doing in space. And you, and yeah. some guys have it, they can extend it out to a, a, a vehicle, you know, like, like right. a Robbie Gordon, like Robbie can do things in a truck that you, n- no one else can. Then like most people would not pull off the stuff he's able, he's been able to pull off, but. No, that's it. Yeah. You, you get to the point where you feel like all, you know, I do have a a feel for that type of stuff, you know, like even when we got into UTV and, you know, we started off racing cross country and racing cross country and UTVs is, is difficult because you're trying to go through between trees with a couple inches on each side, you know, and, and a lot of people struggle because they rip the front right tire off, you know, but I always had such a good feel for exactly how to put the thing where I wanted, you know, that I could probably count on one hand, the amount of trees that I've ever hit in one, you know, and, and never, I guess to this day, hit one hard enough to, to end a race for myself. But, you know, you throw a football at me and it's probably going to hit me in the forehead. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah i mean sometimes your better fingers you know but that's the give and take right you you gave up one to get better at another i guess you know the yin the, the yang i don't know right yeah yeah for sure stay tuned your talent tank isn't full yet for the past 10 years there has been a group of individuals working hard pushing the limits of what's possible with suspension spring technology Today, that group has opened some exciting new doors, stepping out with the release of their own line of premium high-performance coil over springs. Magnitude Performance Suspension is now up and running at their new complex deep in the heart of Texas, manufacturing their new line of premium chrome silicon springs right here in the USA. 
While the name and location is new, the crew at Magnitude is anything but. With extensive multi-genre racing application experience, including 10-plus years specifically testing, tuning, listening to, working with, and answering the needs of Ultra 4 and off-road racers alike. I'm ecstatic to have Magnitude on board as a partner of the Talent Tank, and I stand behind their products as I'm a customer of this team myself. When I was building my last race car, I reached out to now president of Magnitude, Jason Yode, about his sway bar design. He built a sway bar to the specs he calculated for my application, and it was 100% dialed in right out of the box. That almost doesn't sound real, but it happened. Proof this team at Magnitude knows suspensions, springs, sway bars, what works, what doesn't. And I haven't even mentioned their line of valve train springs. They do those as well. LS, LT, diesels, drag racing, duels, and triples, they've got them all. No more waiting around for springs to be made, back-ordered. All the while, you could be testing and tuning your vehicle and practicing your best podium pose. Magnitude has over 10,000 springs in stock. That's over 225 different lengths and rates. These guys have embraced technology with real-time inventory status on their website so enthusiasts and competitors can order with confidence that Magnitude has the parts you need when you need them. I know I mentioned that they are in Texas. That makes me proud, but that also means they are centrally located for quick shipping to your door. No more right coast waiting on California or left coast waiting on North Carolina. Give the team at Magnitude a call at 866-674-1516 or hit up their website magnitudeperformance.com. Mention you're a fan of the Talent Tank or use online code TT10 and get a special 10% discount. Now, back to the show. So your parents, you know, they were building Miller Glass Works there at the shop, you know, building the house out there, expanding land. They sacrificed a lot for you and your brother to get you guys constantly race to race to race, constantly new equipment, constantly, you know, modifying and moving your program forward. That's pretty badass. That's an understatement, man. You know, when you're young, you don't realize how much they give up so that you can do those things. You know, we, all I knew, as far as I knew, we were just going to races and, uh, having fun and getting better and everything else, but you don't realize how hard they worked and, and the sacrifices they made just so that we could do that. You know, uh, the amount of money they spent, you know, they could be long retired and doing whatever they wanted, but to this day they still work because, God knows how much money they spent on us racing, you know, for 20 years. And, you know, I, I've kind of taken over the business and they don't have to do too much here lately, but at the same time, it gave me new appreciation for exactly what they went through. You know, it, it's pretty unbelievable, I guess, what people will do for their kids, but, uh, they did. And, and it created a career for my brother and I, for sure. Um, we definitely could not be where we are without what, what they did you know for all those years yeah your parents sound pretty awesome they do were they out at koh this year they were yeah yeah had they been f- before and actually have you had you been to koh before this year no koh was not even even a thought at all except you know year before in, in 19 i guess kyle cheney who who got second this year a good friend of ours he decided to do it that year so we kind of paid attention and followed him there and, or, you know, followed it online was all, and he went and did it, but we were focused on, on cross country racing on the East coast. And so Kyle went and did it and, you know, he qualified well, but then like 30 miles in, he had a mechanical issue and DNF and we're like, Oh, bummer. I didn't pay attention to it in any way, shape or form after that until 
Can-Am came to kind of everybody, all of their drivers and said, Hey, we're going to make a, a big push at KOH this year and, uh, get ready. And, and don't get me wrong. I was interested in it, but it just wasn't what we did. You know, we didn't do rock racing or rock crawling of any kind. So yeah, KOH wasn't even a thought until, um, can not talk to you guys? Yeah. They said wow. they wanted to make a push at it this year and, Okay. I mean, it seemed fun. Don't get me wrong, but it just, you know, like I said, wasn't, wasn't what we had ever done or had any experience. I'd never even done any desert racing in a UTV in 2009. I did a couple of best in the deserts and I did the Baja 250, which ended about 20 miles in. I crashed and cut my eye. I mean, split it wide open. The goggle lens had popped out and stabbed me in the eye and put a huge gash in my eye. And then we did the 500 that year where we got third, but other than that, that was my only experience even racing anywhere out west in the desert, you know. So uh, end of this past year, we went out there and, and pre-ran for the first time at KOH. Kenham kind of organized a, a group ride out there for all of their drivers and that were going to do the event. And we went out there and, man, we were such goons. <laughs> it was awful. We, we literally burned off our tires in one day. I mean, smoked them. Because, you know, we didn't know any better. We were just wide open everywhere because we're so used to, to sprint type racing, you know, and didn't really uh, have any throttle control through that stuff. But we picked it up pretty quick, but we never really stopped trying to go through the rocks aggressive. And I think that was a big part of our advantage was that through cross country racing, you know, we're used to charging through very tight technical situations and out at koh it was basically the same thing except instead of dodging trees we were dodging rocks so you know instead of trying to crawl over everything we're just going back and forth trying to miss everything but driving pretty dang hard you know and it was an easy course this year right yeah from what i understand hell i wouldn't know the difference (laughs) (laughs) that was that was a that was a jab for uh jt taylor and dave cole on that one um just just they make it sure it's hard as hell next year you know what? I'll be honest with you. We pre-ran all of the hardest obstacles. That's all we did was we we never even went into the desert until the week before, but uh, which was a mistake because we showed up and our suspension was so far off that we spent most of the week suspension testing in the desert, but uh, which came back to an advantage again of having two of us because one of us could focus on the suspension testing in the desert while the other one's out there making course notes. But, you know, all we did was go up and down outer limits and up and down spooners trying to get all of that stuff down. And then honestly, we were pretty disappointed when they said, you know, we could take the bypasses, but at the same time, the course is not to me anyway, the course is not the hard part about that race. You know, a couple of little rocks, rock obstacles is not what makes or breaks that race for you. It's everything that goes into it. I mean, just just feeding your crew there is a gigantic pain in the ass. I mean, all the logistics and all of the prep work that goes into it. We work till 2, 3 a.m. every single night out there. And you're just exhausted by the time the race gets there, you know. But there's so much to it. And the whole the race as a whole is so technical that, again, the course is, is kind of the easy part, whether you are allowed to take the bypasses or not, you know. Oh, for sure. And then there was issues around the, you know, taking bypasses or not taking bypasses. People didn't know if they should or shouldn't or when they should or when they shouldn't. And 
Yeah, it, it was there was some lack of communication, or, or maybe there was communication just wasn't crystal clear. Yeah, yeah, and in the drivers' meeting, you know, they they made it clear all the UTV, all the bypasses were open for the UTVs. Do I think it changed the outcome of the race? No. I mean, we had all those obstacles down, you know, but, you know, at the end of the day, it is what it is. People are going to say what they're going to say about the race. And, uh, oh, for sure. I mean, it is what it is. If you didn't do it, then you wouldn't know, you know? So shifting gears back to, uh, real world, not race world. (laughs) When you were 19, Either you were 19 or your wife, Brianna, now was 19. You guys met each other. Which was it? Was she 21 and you were 19? Brianna, you better get that right. Bri- Brianna. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, you might want to edit that my one, ass. <laughs> I haven't even met her. Uh, yeah, it's funny because everybody calls her Brianna. But, uh, yeah, no, I was 19 and she was 21. We met through uh, my now brother-in-law was a buddy from back when we were racing uh, quads. Well, we were racing quads still at, at that time. And I had a girlfriend, she had a boyfriend and, and HD, my brother-in-law was always like, Oh man, I got a girl you need to meet and yada, yada, yada. I was like, man, I got a girlfriend. Well, we were at a race and he said the same thing. I was like, you know what? I actually, uh, broke my girlfriend. And I broke up about three days ago and Brianna had just so happened to break up with her boyfriend a couple of days before. And I had a broken leg at the time actually. And, uh, went out to a local race and they didn't of course tell her that we were meeting, but I came out there all dressed up nice and stuff. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the rest was kind of history from there, even though they had kind of misdescribed her to me and told me she was blonde when really she was a brunette. And so I was trying to hit on the wrong girl at one point, but, uh, you know, got that straight and, uh, yeah, we talked pretty much every day since then. That was shoot 15 years ago. That's solid. I, I just had my 15 year wedding anniversary and that just felt like a, a number that didn't seem attainable. And then I know you're sitting there, I'm looking at your face and, and you kind of had that same look like, yeah, man, we just, yeah, here we are. Yeah. It makes you realize how old I'm getting, I guess, you know, like I said, I was 19 now I'm 34. So yeah, it's, uh, it's hey. been quite a while for sure. But you know, we, we dated for, I think like seven or eight years before we got married and uh which was probably the best thing we ever did for sure but you know like like everybody we had our ups and downs and uh most of it's always been ups and and and, now, and now you have 14 dogs yeah now we have 14 dogs <laughs> and, and some cats four, that like to four. fight in the background yeah, the cats are, you know, like I said, we live at the end of the dirt road, and so dogs kind of show up. We've got some that are here by choice, but most are uh, show-ups. So, and the cats are, actually the cats I think were brought in because to uh, try to keep the mice under control in the shop, which uh, they do pretty good, but they mostly fight each other. That's solid. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can't go wrong with some barn cats, though. I mean, at all. They used to be pretty rowdy, but uh, they grow on you a little bit. So, Brianna, did I say that right? Or no, Brianna. Brianna. Oh, dang it, Brianna. Can I can I start writing down in my notes like spell it differently so I get it right? Brianna. I'm sorry, Brianna. Listen to this, and then when you the right see way. me in person, <laughs> you can throw a beer at me. <laughs> I, Brianna, though, she's never known you to not be a racer not be an off-road guy, not be always in the shop working on your junk. No. That's pretty cool. 
Yeah, she no, that's all she's ever known. That's for sure. And she used to, you know, she used to travel all across the country with us going to races and stuff when she was younger. We were younger, actually. But uh, yeah, I mean, she she's been around it since day one um, that we've known each other. First time she ever came out to my house was actually a, a motocross race we were having here at the our property. So, yeah, that's that's all she's ever known. And you know, I was definitely her introduction to this. She'd never been around any of it before me. So, um, yeah, she, she stuck around. So I guess she must be into it a little bit. Does she have her own Can-Am? No, no. She'll ride with me in mine. It's kind of funny. The very first race I ever did in a side-by-side, we got them and, you know, back then side-by-side racing wasn't very serious. Can-Am said, Hey, you know, we came out with these things. Do you want to try to race them? We said, well, shit, we don't have anywhere to race them. So, And what year was that? That was 2012, uh, 2013? Or, 2012, or, yeah. Or 12, yeah. yeah 2012. So we talked to our local cross-country series, which is Torn, that uh, we were racing quads at. And we said, hey, you know, these things are kind of getting popular. What do you think about, you know, adding a class for them? Well, the owner of the series was – a uh, old dirt track racer. And so, you know, his ears kind of perked up. I mean, it's like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. So they went and said, okay, we'll, we'll throw in a UTV class and, you know, they'll just race on the quad track and cool. Well, uh, man, at first it was, it was kind of crazy. I mean, you know, like I said, this is in the early days of UTV racing when it was not serious. And so very first race out there, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, okay, this is something cool. Me and Brian are going to be able to do this together. She'll be able to co-pilot with me and all that. And it's going to be fun. Well, uh, she got in, in practice and, uh, we were such amateurs. I'll tell you, we had our harnesses connected to the top of the cage because the, <laughs> the things didn't come with harness bars, you know, and we got them and we're like, okay, we need to put harnesses in. Where are we going to attach these? And I was like, yeah, up here looks good. So that's how big of amateurs we were. We had no clue what we were doing. And so we weren't wearing fire suits. I mean, nothing, total amateurs. And so anyway, I stuck her in the passenger seat and put one of my helmets on her. And uh, we're out there practicing and promptly rolled that thing over in a creek. <laughs> and we kind of caught this little ledge and rolled down into the creek anyway. And I look up and she's just kind of sitting there dangling and uh, under the harnesses. She kind of gets out and people help us flip it over and stuff. And before the race, she's like, uh, I'm not getting back in that thing. <laughs> so I had to throw somebody else in there and, you know, shoot, I don't, she's ridden around in our defender with me since then, but that's about it. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't get in a race car much anymore. That's, uh, that's pretty, pretty damn funny. Yeah, no, I ruined her for sure. Had I not done that, I don't know if she would have rode with me anymore anyway, but, uh, I would have had a better shot. That's for sure. Right. So when you, you started racing this, you know, at such a young age on dirt bikes, then you guys, you know, or at least dirt bikes around the place, not, you know, officially sanctioned racing. Then you guys started, you know, being sanctioned racers with, uh, on quads. And then you guys moved to Yamaha at some point like 2006, 2007 as quad guys. And then as we just discussed, Can-Am came into the picture for you around 09. Is that about right? Yep. So let me think back here. You know, back in the day when we first started quad racing, like the premier ATV was a 250R, Well, which was a Honda. Well, Honda hadn't produced that since 1989. So quad racing was pretty much all these fully custom hybrid quads, you know, and 
these engines were from 1989. Of course, you could buy, you know, OEM parts from Honda and, and aftermarket ones and, and build these quads, but they were full custom chassis and, and completely custom. Well, then when the four stroke dirt bikes started coming into the picture, of course, people started buying the dirt bikes, taking the engine out and then putting them into these custom chassis. And then in 2004, Yamaha released the YFC 450. And that was the first production motocross ATV or racing specific ATV since 1989, basically. And so, of course, everybody jumped on those. And then Honda released one the following year. And then a couple of years later, Suzuki and Kawasaki and, and everybody. So we had stuck with Yamahas all the way through 07. And we were both running the Pro-Am class at uh, the National Series. And Cody actually won the Pro-Am National Championship in 2007. Well, mid-season, uh, Can-Am had come into the picture. And they had there was a series called WPSA. And they had brought in their uh, big t- snowmobile teams that were had some riders racing the 4x4 quads because they had a class at the WPSA series. Well, Cody started talking with them and introduced himself and, and got to chatting and stuff. Well, Can-Am was releasing their Sport 450 four-stroke ATV in 2008. And so in 2008, Cody was a part of one of their three factory teams. And the first year was pretty rough on those bikes. I mean, they were brand new and and had some issues and stuff. And I stayed on my Yamaha and and, uh, I think I rode a Honda midway through the year. And then in 2009, I switched to Can-Am and signed with one of their factory teams at the time and raced out in California or, or on the West coast, I should say. And so then in 2010, put together a deal with Can-Am to race more Texas based series. And Cody was actually racing in new England, but kind of the support for, for ATV racing was starting to dwindle a little bit, you know, in 08, 09, there were, you know, every brand had a factory team. So how, how did those work? Did Can-Am, you know, have an 18 wheeler and they'd show up with the, the bikes or did you guys have to prep the bikes no. there in Greenville and haul them. He just got to f- arrive it and was, drive, right? Yeah, it was fly in. They had 18 wheelers, the whole nine yards. I mean, it was a full true factory effort, you know, back then when we were younger, I was always a little bit faster than Cody. Well, starting in 2001, I had a stint of getting hurt in 2001. Uh, we we're having a race out here at our property and, uh, it was a two day race and I can't remember, but for whatever reason, I was riding after the race the first day and a buddy of mine uh, had just built this brand new Honda 400 EX and he wanted me to ride it and see what I thought, you know, and uh, we, we were, you know, young at the time. I think 2001, I was maybe 15 or 16 and I was a sophomore in high school, but we were we were some of the faster guys around for sure, you know, so I was riding and and came over a step up jump and one of our guys was prepping the tracks. He didn't know I was riding and I landed right in the bucket of the tractor and sheared the quad in half, crushed my jaw, broke my leg. And man, I was 
jacked up big time. I was really, really lucky that I didn't die, honestly, because it hit my, the chin right here at the bottom of my chin where I had this big scar, uh, hit right on top of the bucket. Well, had the bucket been an inch lower, you know, it would have chopped my head off. Another way I was lucky was a, a buddy of ours, Thomas Brown, who's actually one of the top pro quad guys right now. He was quite a bit younger and he was right behind me. And luckily he was too young to even be jumping that jump. So had he jumped it, you know, obviously been bad all over again. But uh, yeah, so that, that was the first time I got really hurt. I was in the hospital for, for a while and uh, took a while to heal up, but got going again. And I think uh, I was 16 when I got healed up and went to the first ATV motocross race in Macon, Georgia. And I raced the B class and won and was on cloud nine, came back, did a local race. And my bike cut out on the face of this big triple at a local race. And I just landed real hard and broke my other leg. <laughs> just from landing hard. I'm sorry. I'm laughing. I, I mean, I'm laughing in like <laughs> your bad luck on that. Yeah, no, I know it, it gets comical. So got two plates in, in my tib fib right there above my ankle and, uh, healed up from that. I think, uh, that was 2002, 2003. I raced pro-am and at the a national series and finished, uh, third in pro-am and second in the A class. And in 2004, raced both pro-am classes. I can't remember where I ended up that year, but it was okay. 2005, I was racing pro-am again. Well, second race crashed in the start and kind of the bike kicked sideways and somebody ran right into my leg, broke my leg again. So was out the remainder of that season. 2006, racing pro-am. I think the second or third, Cody is racing pro. And because, you know, this at this point, I've been hurt basically four times really bad or three times. And Cody had moved past me a little bit. Well, that year in 2006 at Gatorback in Florida, uh, Cody crashed in practice and broke his femur. Well, that same race in the start, I crashed and knocked myself out and didn't even realize Cody had broke his femur or anything. And that's back before they took concussions very serious, you know. Um, but we came home and of course I, I came back to normal a little bit. Well, two weeks later was the next round at Bud's Creek in Maryland and Cody had just broken his femur and, you know, my parents decided I oh, were going to stay home. And I was like, I, I can go up there. And a buddy of ours, um, name's Matt Weenan and his brother, Chad is one of the top pro guys right now as well on quads. And he and I drove up there and we're like, yeah, we'll be fine. You know, and this is two weeks after Cody breaks his femur. Well, of course, I crash and break my femur opposite leg. <laughs> and so that put me out the rest of, of 2006. So did you guys just like strap your two broke legs together and like, <laughs> pretty, much. You know, like, have, like... <laughs> pretty much it was pretty bad. Both of us were at home with broken femurs. And so, uh, you know, at this point I, I've had a pretty bad run of getting hurt. You know, I always come back and was always fast and, and everything, but you know, just wasn't at the level that I should have been at. I mean, all the guys that I had raced at were, you know, some of the top pros at this point. So I, I, it's not like I was terribly far off, but, you know, I just wasn't. Uh, it was enough. Yeah, I wasn't at the level that I could have been at, that's for sure. And so 2007, let's see, we were racing the WPSA series and Cody had moved back down to Pro-Am and I was racing Pro-Am. And I struggled pretty hard that year, but, uh, Cody won the championship 
So 2008 rolls around and, you know, quad racing is really, really big at this point. I mean, every OEM has a factory team with multiple riders and people are making pretty good salaries. And, and it's like, man, it's, it's at the level where people can actually make a living doing this. Well, uh, you know, in 2008 pro classes freaking stacked and I was always just right there at the point of being the last guy to not make it into the main. I mean, there would be 40 pros, you know, and I would be the 21st guy, you know, and they have 20 in the gate. So it was kind of a frustrating year. I had a couple good races and made some of the mains for the motos, you know, but not all of them for sure. Cody had a bunch of good races. Then in 2008, in 2008 that's when Cody was with Ken Am. Uh, 2009, when, you know, we come back into this deal and I signed with Ken Am to race that West Coast series. And, you know, here we are now. Here we are now. I mean, that's a long resume there in the, the early 2000s of a lot of damage. Man, you mm-hmm. tore yourself up. I mean, literally, the, the, the old saying, like, with age comes the cage. Yeah. <laughs> and, and here you yeah. are. Now, how many of those guys that, you know, you're saying you're, you know, you're not making the cut, right? The uh, 40 pros and you're number 21. How many of those guys have won uh, King of the Hammers? Uh, none of them, but like I said, uh, (laughs) they've all, they've all made it in some way or another. I mean, all the guys that, you know, I kind of raced with coming up, you know, Chad Weenan, I think's won five or six or seven pro national championships at this point. And Thomas Brown, the kid that was right behind me going over that step up a couple years younger than me. Um, when I hit the tractor, um, you know, he's won several pro races. He was a factory Yamaha rider and, you know, he's one of the top guys now. I mean, it, it's cool to see that a lot of my friends that we raced with, you know, all made it in some way or another, you know, whether, you know, it's on side by sides or, or quads, but, uh, it's it's pretty cool. Gives you a lot of pride looking back because all those guys, you know, they used to come to our house over the winter because they're all, a lot of them are from up north. You know, Thomas was in Denton, uh, pretty close to us, which is why he grew up racing with us. But a lot of those guys were up north, and so they'd come down to our property and and train over the winter and stay in their in their trailers in our backyard. And you know, everybody was was kind of a just a family, you know. I mean, I think that is what it took for so many guys to be so local to you to have you look at it and you like, oh, I have, I've been you know kind of blessed to have all these friends that are so good and they've all made it on some level, but you got to also look at what a catalyst you were and your brother were and your, your mom and dad were for the, having that track there, you know, basically you literally, would you say your home track, <laughs> it's your home track, but how many of those guys spent how many days and nights and hours of their lives out there at your place? just honing their craft and getting good and getting better and then elevating and then everyone playing against each other, elevating their game. But no doubt, man. And we'd, and we'd go to the races. And like I said, like we were talking about everywhere or earlier, everybody is such good friends off the track, but on the track, we all wanted to kick the shit out of each other. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's awesome, you know, and, and man, we've got so many stories. I mean, we can go on for hours and, I'll, I'll talk to uh, a buddy of mine, Sage, that's in Northern California. I talk to him pretty often, but we'll get on the phone and we'll just start talking about old stories, you know, from when we were all staying out and we're younger here, you know, and uh, thought we were cool. Yeah, right. Even still today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you could look back at yourself, you know, back then and then uh, what words of advice would you have for yourself 12 years ago? 
don't get hurt. Don't jump that jump and break your leg. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it is crazy. I mean, I, I keep going back to KOH, you know, like there's so many little moments in that race that made it turn out and have the result that I did. You know, there's so many things that could have just barely changed and I, I probably wouldn't have won, you know, um, it's the same going back through my entire racing career and you can pick out probably five moments that changed everything for better or worse, you know? I guess that's life, really. <laughs> I call those, I call this inflection points. And yeah. for everyone that listens yeah. to this, they're like, oh, yeah, that's, a, of course, why it's going to say that that's an inflection point. But, yeah, those are inflection points that they, they literally change the course of your history. Yeah, no, that, for sure. Or steer your, de- maybe the right words is steer your destiny. Uh, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. I mean, shoot, man, look at, look at uh, lots of professional athletes that have got, hurt over the years and it changed their entire life just in one moment. Yeah. Like Bo Jackson. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like everyone, everything was Bo knows everything. And then all of a sudden Bo wasn't, you know? Yeah, no. And, and I was very fortunate to never get seriously, seriously injured, you know, where, where it changed my whole life, but man, it could have been, you know, like right. I said, when I hit the tractor, I was an inch away from it, but I've been pretty fortunate for sure. Stay tuned. Your talent tank is in full get. Since 2007, Custom Splice has been the go-to supplier for tactical on- and off-road vehicle recovery equipment. Custom Splice owner Todd Stoffer saw a market where demands for absolutely the safest solutions to vehicle recovery were not being met. Since then, Custom Splice has taken on numerous safety and recovery projects, solving deficiencies in recovery gear for individuals and companies worldwide. What started with synthetic ropes has led to Custom Splice's expansive inventory of not just ropes in countless colors and diameters, but an expansive product line of hooks, fair leads, specialty thimbles, chafe guards, to name a few. Plus the fabrication of Custom Splice's newest addition, recovery rings. Not to be forgotten, don't miss grabbing some Custom Splice soft shackles with your next order, which are also available in many sizes and colors. Even though Custom Splice is a small business in America's heartland of Kansas, you can find Custom Splice employees shipping their products globally on a daily basis. Let's support this small business that supports our community and the talent tank. Give Todd and his crew at Custom Splice a call at 785-856-1844 or go to the web at customsplice.com before you get stuck without a Custom Splice solution. Now, back to the show. So back in 2012, when uh, Can-Am started putting you guys into uh, UTVs, how did that discussion happen with them? You and your brother doing you know factory riding for them. How did the, I guess, the, the bridge get crossed on putting you guys in UTVs? And where were you? Were you warm about it, lukewarm about it, cold about it? And you're like, well, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. What was all the decisions that were made kind of in, around that era that put you guys into those cars? You know, going back just a little bit to say 2008, 2009, 2007-ish, when we were racing WPSA, and, you know, they had a UTV class there, but back then they were rhinos, you know, and rhinos, like people put all this long travel stuff on them and make them look really cool, but they were literally 40 horsepower. 
And I was like, these are the lamest things ever. And I, I could never imagine having any fun doing that. And then our, a good family friend of ours, Richard Robinson, I remember he had bought a rhino and he brought it out and I took it around our track, you know, and of course it's slow and all this, but I was like, Oh man, this is kind of fun, I guess, but I still would never in, be interested in racing one. And of course, you know, if, if four of them started the race, maybe one finished at that point. Well, uh, in 2012, when we were renewing our contract for, for racing that year, they said, you know, things were getting a little tighter on the support. I mean, their budget kept getting cut for the ATV racing. And they said, but we do have some budget, you know, for side-by-sides. Y'all have any interest in this? And we're like, I guess, sure. <laughs> you know, like you said, I was kind of lukewarm to it. And I think Cody was the first one that had the discussion. Cody's like, ah, screw it. I'll race the side-by-side. You race the quads fun. I was like, no, I'm not going to let that happen. (laughs) We're both going to do it. So, uh, yeah, we got them and, and we got, they were Can-Am commanders, you know, which are basically their most basic sport utility ish, but leaning way heavier towards utility than sport. Uh, but it was all they had. It was the first unit they had ever come out with at that point car. And, and we got them and we drove them at our house and we're like, holy crap, these are fun. <laughs> you know, this is really cool. That's awesome. And so, yeah. And so, but they were still turds. I mean, I think that back then those things maybe had 75 horsepower, you know, at the time they were rockets to us, you know, what, what's pretty crazy. And I think about it is 2012 was not that long ago. No, not at all. In 2012, we raced the commander, which was, you know, had probably eight inches of travel and about 75 horsepower. And then the following year, Can-Am came out with the Maverick, the original one, which was like 100 or so horsepower, 101 maybe, and had a lot more travel, handled a lot better, a lot faster. And then, so 13 and 14, we raced that car. Well, in 15, they came out with the Maverick Turbo, which was the first turbo, I think, in production. And, uh, of course, we thought those things were rocket ships. And so, you know, they got better and better. Well, that was in 15 and 16, we raced those. And then in 17, they came out with the X3. So literally over the course of five years, we raced really four different platforms. And in 17, uh, basically the same platform we're in right now. And they're still, you know, the baddest thing out today, you know, and and no telling what uh, is going to come out over the next year or two, you know, or a couple of years, who knows. But uh, it's pretty crazy the rate that UTB racing is evolving, you know. I don't know quite how many platforms Polaris has released in that same amount of time, but, you know, it's like every OEM just keeps one-upping each other every single year, and they're forced to evolve these things at the point that, who knows five years from now they may be basically the same as uh, a cheap 4400 car you know yeah I don't, but you can finance it exactly you can go and and anything you break on it you can buy a spare part for you know there or you can build a completely custom one i mean that's kind of the beauty of it you can do it at any level well i think that's really what's cool about what they have done for off-road the UTV itself, what it's done for off-road, I, I, I struggle for exactly how I want to say this, but by dropping that barrier of entry that anyone can go in and sign up and, you know, get their, uh, many people can afford to be outside and off-road and enjoying the outdoors and those things when they can make payments on it. Yeah, 100%. 
And so has that lower barrier of entry impacted the race scene and the, the, the racing that you've seen in the competition by guys because the barrier of entry is so small or so low, has it clouded the, the competition field for you? Uh, man, I, I think that's kind of the beauty of it as we kind of discussed before we started recording this. I mean, UTV racing is really in its infancy. I mean, it's only, like I said, 2012 when we got into it, I think, uh, maybe 2008 was the first year that UTV racing really started. So, you know, you compare that to, to off-road racing in general. I mean, it's brand new. It's a brand new class. And that's what kind of makes it so great is that there's so many different levels of it. People can can go to a dealership and finance a, a, an X3 and throw some harnesses in it and go race it, you know. Or you can do it at the level we do where, you know, it, it's ultra competitive and I would say we put as much or or more effort into our prep and race program as any other class of vehicle for sure. I mean, it's kind of like what what's the difference between our program and say a 4400 program other than the cost, you know, just because a lot of our stuff is production based. I mean, we're still starting with a bare chassis and building these things up, even though the engine and all that is a production engine and, and the chassis start off as a production chassis. And of course you can buy the A-arms and all these things from various aftermarket manufacturers that produce them and the stuff's not all completely custom it's the same amount of effort that goes into the program you know well yeah when you look at the cost of a program the car is the cheap part right right that's for sure and and so and so that that works the same way in you know 4600 4500 4800 the 4400s hell it's the same in the trophy trucks right it's just uh i guess the magnifier there the multiplier of what the parts cost but at the same time it's still the same amount of work and to be honest, I, I might even throw out there that working on your car might be a little bit more hard to work on than, say, some of the better sorted out 4,400 cars. Dude, they start off as kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah, right? You've got so much plastic and everything to work around. Of course, ours don't have all that stuff. And and when we're uh, kind of designing our cars, we try to make them as easy to work on as possible, obviously. But, yeah, you're you're – hundred percent. Right. I mean, you know, we didn't start from scratch for sure. I mean, we started, ours are still, you know, can MX threes, but we replaced this plastic door panel with a piece of sheet metal and, you know, pulled it on there with Zeus fasteners. But, uh, the other thing that I think that's so cool about them is that, and we've, I certainly seen this crossover stuff that's happened in, uh, ultra four style cars is that you can take them rock crawling. They're kind of okay at that. You know, they're not the best, you know, they're not a true rock car. We've seen guys road race and we've seen guys hill do hill climb with them. We've seen guys run Baja with them. We've seen guys lower them, put small tires on them and run like SCCA parking lot timing events. You can yeah. do all that with a UTV. You can do anything. I mean, and it's literally like change the tires and the shocks and then you can go do this style of racing and then change the tires and the shocks and you can go do this style of racing. Our pre-runners that we pre-ran at KOH on were bone stock machines with tires and wheels you know, of course, harnesses and stuff like that, but they were as close to stock as you could possibly get. And they were so capable out there. It was insane. I mean, just as capable as our race cars. I think, 
I could have taken a, a nearly stone stock machine and gone just as fast out there. You know, obviously doing the mods that we did uh, gives you some peace of mind that things going to hold up. But our cars, again, were not that far from stock. I mean, yeah, we cut the outside six inches of the frame off and angle it up, but just for some more clearance in the rocks. But other than that, I mean, it's just gussets to make the thing stronger. And they were basically stock machines, you know. How do you feel that your Can-Ams stack up to the other Can-Ams in the field? Is everyone kind of doing roughly the same mods or is it very different? Everyone has a different take or a different play on a, each thing. Like how many people both sided their Can-Ams? Um, quite a few, us and Kyle Cheney, um, Dustin Jones, all the S3 guys, you know, S3 power sports over in Shreveport, a couple hours from us. They do our chassis, all our chassis work. And, uh, we kind of modeled ours after the chassis that they had built for Dustin to race in, uh, 2019. And they said, yeah, the boat sides help. So we're like, okay, let's do that. You know, um, theirs was a full tube chassis, but ours, uh, was, was based off the production chassis. I, we definitely went, um, I'd say the furthest with our builds compared to a lot of the other guys. I mean, it's, it's like everybody's at one extreme or the other. They're either running, a pretty much bone stock car with, you know, a arms and, and heavy skid plates and suspension, or they're doing kind of along the lines we did where they're full race cars, you know, ours were, were based a lot off of our race cars that we did in GNCC and at the work series, but just kind of catered more towards the rocks, you know, um, with the boat sides. But that's the cool thing is, is, you know, you can, you can do just as well in a, in a, 100% stock car as you can in a race car. Um, We chose the race car because, like we said, working on them is a lot easier and it's what we were comfortable with. We said, you know, we're going to do this event, we're going to do it right, and we're going to go all out. So we're not going to spare any expense. And and we spent a load of money going to do it, but uh, can't argue the results, I guess. No, I I don't think you can argue those results at all, but we can always go back and dissect them. Right. And, and uh, playing yeah. back in our heads a million times. What do you think are the strategic advantages that Can-Am, the Can-Am platform had over the Polaris platform in the KOH 2020 race? Definitely the wheelbase. You know, out there in the desert, the Can-Am's got a longer wheelbase and it gets pretty rough in a couple sections. There's a lot of G outs and stuff. And that extra wheelbase helps you quite a bit. The Can-Am platform as a whole is just ultra reliable. It's the main thing it's got going for it. I mean, everything on it is really, really tough and reliable. Of course, we do a couple of things to ours to make them even more reliable with this couple of small little, I won't say weak points, but um, things that are more prone to failure than, uh, you know, the stock piece. But, you know, the reliability, the center of gravity in the X3s, you really sit down low in them, which you think for rock crawling, uh, that's no big deal. But man, when you're side hilling and you're sitting way down in it, as opposed to way up high, that makes a big difference in your comfort level (laughs) going through there that you're not going to roll, you know? Oh, it's all confidence. If you're not confident, it's going to go bad. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I, you know, at first I wasn't very confident because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but you know, what do you think about, uh, Robbie Gordon's and Todd Romano's speed energy or speed vehicles, the, the new speed UTVs? Have you tracked on them any? 
A little bit. I mean, I, I kind of followed it when, uh, you know, the Textron came around and I knew Robbie was, was involved with it. And I always thought they were kind of a cool looking car, you know. I guess I'm not totally up to speed on the, the speed uh, units that he's actually manufacturing himself and where the whole Textron thing ends or ended and, and the speed vehicles began. But you know, in my opinion, the more the merrier. Anybody that's out there building anything, I think, is good for the sport, and I would support it a hundred percent. You know, it's when things like that go away that the the sport kind of dies. You know, so like I said, anything that is put out there, I'm I'm a hundred percent behind. Competition breeds innovation. That hundred percent. Otherwise, everyone sit. You know, if if somebody's winning, you know, it's it's like in a race; they get way out front. And nobody's chasing them and they're resting on their laurels <laughs> and versus when you guys are running neck to neck, like you, you, when you and Kyle Chaney are running, you know, pushing each other hard t- wheel to wheel. Yeah. You're making decisions that are split second. You're weighing the probabilities, you know, a high probability pass or low probability pass. It works the same in business and it works the same in these guys in these platforms. And for me, just outside looking at, in on UTV, it really felt like it's been Polaris's game for so many years that they've rested on their laurels and they got the their rug yanked out from underneath them at this year uh, out there in Johnson Valley. Yeah, but at the same time, you know they're going to come out swinging next year, so uh, we better be ready for it. But I mean, you know, it's not just Polaris. I mean, Honda's bringing their factory teams out, and same with Yamaha and, and uh, Kawasaki had a little bit of a presence this year with McGrath, obviously. <laughs> which was cool, but in an ideal world, everybody would have a serious effort out there. And, uh, well, everybody did really have a serious effort. I mean, uh, nobody was, was slacking there once a, a couple of years from now, you know, I think all the machines will be a little more equal where right now I kind of feel like Can-Am and, and Polaris are kind of at the top of their game and, and the Japanese manufacturers are kind of catching up cause they're a little newer to it. But, you know, they're not quitting. There's a reason that those big companies are who are a little more conservative are investing in side by sides heavily, you know, and they're not going to stop until they're the best. I I guarantee you that. And so Can-Am and Polaris and are going to have to do the same thing. They're going to have to keep innovating and and pushing forward, you know, if they want to want to keep their um, level of, of advantage, I guess. Where do you think that is, though? What's that angle? Where is the spots that you think that they need to up their game and change their game and advance the vehicle? Like, there's got to be a couple bullet points, like low-hanging fruit right off the top of your head. Where does it get better? Well, none of them come off the showroom floor with a turbo, for starters, you know, uh, or any kind of power adder, for that matter. So the ones that they have, you know, but like the GYTR turbo is obviously endorsed by Yamaha, but it's not straight off the showroom floor with it. So I'd say that's definitely the low hanging fruit right there is, is, you know, the Can-Ams are coming off the showroom floor with nearly 200 horsepower where the other ones are coming off with a hundred, you know? So that's a pretty big difference when you're in a 15, 1600 pound vehicle. Yeah. And, and you and your co-driver weigh, you know, 200 pounds each, right? you're like a quarter of the weight of the vehicle (laughs) yeah no exactly i I do want to get into we have totally been peppering this whole interview with koh tidbits from this past year and how your race went but let's just go in and kind of devolve that so 
KOH 2020 last fall, Can-Am talks to you guys, you and your brother about, Hey, we want to make this big push. They talked to kind of all the racers. You kind of watched what Kyle Cheney did out there last year, then turned it off and turned your back and walked away. And then, you know, six, eight months go by and you're approached about, Hey, let's make a go for this. You say, yes, let's start walking through from that point to race day about what prep you did. Cause if I saw into what you said earlier, you guys went out and pre-ran a couple different times, even though this was your first time to race in Johnson Valley, this wasn't your first time to learn the rocks and learn the desert. You spent some time out there leading up to it. Yeah. And, and you know, back to when they approached us about it, it's not like we just said, yes. I mean, we were, we were pretty dang pumped, you know, of course we, we knew how Well, we thought we knew how big the event was. You can't comprehend how big it is until you get there. But yeah, so we signed our contract and part of that included KOH for 2020. And we got a couple of pre-runners and, you know, the last works race that we were doing was in November out there in Prim, Nevada, which is only a couple hours from Johnson Valley. So after straight from there, we went to Johnson Valley and Kenham had kind of organized this, this group ride with, you know, all of their drivers that they were supporting for the race. And, you know, it's kind of just, uh, everybody get to know each other and, you know, kind of a, a team pre-run. Was there anybody in that group that was already kind of had tribal knowledge of Johnson Valley? Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, Phil Blurton and Jason Weller, uh, Logan Gastel. I mean, Logan lives right there. Phil has raced several years. Uh, same with Jason Weller. And Dustin Jones was there. He had raced the year before. Kyle was supposed to be there, but had a family matter, so he couldn't make it. But his co-pilot was there who had raced the year before. I think actually everybody there had a ton of experience with the place, except for Cody and I. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah. And especially, you know, they're all from the West coast. So everybody's kind of been around it, uh, minus us and Dustin, but yeah, no, everybody kind of knew what the place was and what they were getting into and, and had raced it before minus us. Like I said, we didn't, we didn't even know you had to put the things in low to go through the rock sections. We get out there the first day and we kind of split up into groups and, and went and ran some of the trails. And like I said, we were just kind of wide open through everything. You know, we didn't know the pace through the rocks. We didn't know anything whatsoever, but, uh, those guys all helped us out a ton and were showing us, you know, kind of how to get through everything and to help us kind of find our way around because that's a big part of it out there obviously too you know by by day two we we had a lot better feel for it and i think the whole time we were pre-running i maybe broke one axle the whole time but that trip we had taken we we decided okay we're going to try the wider car the narrow car so cody brought the 64 inch car and i brought the 72 And we kind of felt like the 64 had an advantage in the rocks where the 72 had an advantage in the desert. And we said, okay, well, we're good enough drivers to manage the 64 in the desert and we suck in the rocks. So any advantage we can get through those things we're going to take. So we decided, okay, we're going to go home and we're going to take the 72 car and switch it back to a 64 and go out there. And we pre-ran one more trip with Phil Blurton for a couple of days. I think we were out there two and we were out there for two or three days the day before. So we maybe have a total of four or five days pre-running before the race. And again, we had spent all of our time trying to learn how to get through these rock obstacles and no time in the desert. 
So when we showed up to start pre-running the week before the race, we showed up, I think the race was on, uh, what day was it on Sunday? Sunday. Yeah. 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 Yep. So we got there Monday before and we said, okay, we're going to spend the whole week pre-running and, and get this place down. Well, we go out there and our suspension and, and the first trip out, we knew our suspension was a little off and we kept making little changes thinking it would get better. We're like, okay, it's all right. But then when we get out there and we realize how big the desert loop actually is and how rough it is out there. And we're like, the cars will never finish either. The cars are going to break or we're going to be pissing so much blood that we're not going to be able to take it. So, uh, luckily we had arranged for our suspension tuner, George white with doubly racing and, uh, Doug roll with, with roll design and Elka to come out the week before. And when I say we spent the whole week suspension testing, I mean, we spent the whole week suspension testing and it was like, we were getting a little better, a little better, a little better all week. And then right there, the day before qualifying, it's like, we nailed it. Our suspension was, was awesome, you know, and we're pretty sure that's why, you know, Cody's shock bolt broke was we had the suspension on and off the car so much and like I said, we're working till two in the morning and people are, are torquing stuff down with half inch impacts and, and the bolt got stretched and broke is kind of our best guess because shock bolts are not something that just break, you know? No. But yeah, so we got our suspension to where we could haul ass through the desert and uh, it worked in the rocks too. And so in the end, our, our vehicle package was put together really, really well. So before we talk about specifically in between the green flag and the checker flag on that day, we know it takes a big effort to get out to the hammers. We know it takes a lot of support people. It, it, it takes a team. It's a really a team effort. You guys are supporting two cars. How many people do you guys have come out there with you? Dude. <laughs> you alluded so, yeah. to feeding everybody was like feeding an army in which I can totally well, identify with that. But so everybody that came was just buddies that, that came to help us. Uh, you know, we had George White from Double E and, and Doug Roll from Elka and Hans Luger from HMF flew in specifically to help us. We had uh, friends from back home that, that, you know, because it took two trailers to get all of our stuff out there. We had four X3s and a Defender and a Jeep and all this stuff we had to take, you know. And like I said, we have lots of friends from home that came. It was tough. And then, you know, we pitted with Kyle Chaney and he had his whole crew of people and everything. Uh, and we all kind of worked together. All the Can-Am guys, like I said, we all worked together really um, to help with pitting and everything. Yeah, we're, we're going to be better prepared next year. We didn't expect to be working on the cars near so much as we were. And we were, you know, under easy ups and we're like, oh, we show up. And we're like, oh man, why has everybody got these big, nice enclosed tents? Well, the weather out there turns out sucks <laughs> and that's as that about big it. a factor as anything. So you're out there trying to work under an easy up in 40 mile an hour wind with the dust rolling through there so hard that you can't breathe. And thank God it wasn't raining, you know? Uh, well, you kind of answered some questions. I was actually just getting ready to ask. I was like, did you guys, you know, have a hammer town address? Were you guys immersed in, in the, the culture there of living inside the wire or where were you guys uh, set up at? 
We did. We were, we had two spots, uh, Holly 100 and 102 and Kyle was in 104. So we were all kind of, we had three spots all there together and, uh, we had some RVs that we had rented and then our, our race trailer and our other flatbed that we had brought our stuff out. And then Kyle had his big rig and Kyle had been there the year before and it invested in a big enclosed awning for the side of his trailer, which we'll definitely be doing next year because <laughs> getting out of the elements to work is mandatory. Yeah, we, we were in Hammertown, but you know, like I said, we, we looked like a little sideshow over there because again, we're used to short course racing where you show up or well, short course cross country style racing where you show up with your car prepped, you race and you go home, you know, not being out there for a week and, riding and working and riding and working and riding and working, you know, and then ripping the car all apart because we needed to change all this stuff. And after qualifying, you know, ripping every corner off the car the night before and, and putting it all back together, brand new and reprepping it. But it's all encompassing endurance. It's like, you've got a week of endurance for an endurance race. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I keep saying we work till 2am every night. I'm not bullshitting the night before the race. I took a picture of my car. It's on my phone finished at like 2.05 a.m. And I went and I got up at 5 a.m. because they said, you know, we're going to start lining up at 6. Well, I didn't realize I didn't have to be there at 6, but I was there in my fire suit ready to go to line up at 6 a.m., you know. And so I got three hours of sleep the night before. And Cody, same thing. And, and you know, everybody that was helping us, same thing, you know. It's brutal. It really is. I mean... It's crazy, but it also makes the win that much more rewarding. You know, the fact that we know the effort we put in and how freaking hard we worked, you know, even the months before building the race cars to have it pay off like that is, is the best feeling you can imagine. So you guys qualified on Saturday, you and your brother end up one, two on the line. We talked about this a little bit ago. How did your qualifying feel before you saw the time? Awful. So Cody, you know, when they released the the qualifying order, Cody and Kyle were both pretty early. Cody was like, I think in the second group or something, second hour. And so he goes out there and he laid down a freaking heater, I think like a 241, which was one of the faster 4,400 times, you know, Kyle went and he was, um, he was second at the time. Well, I didn't qualify till late afternoon and the track got pretty hammered. So I go out there and I'm going around it and I feel like I'm just making mistakes and I'm all over the place and I miss a couple lines that I wanted to take. And then I'm going up that, uh, whatever the name of that rock hill is where you've got kind of the waterfall going down and there was a broken razor in the middle of the trail that had been the guy before me, obviously. And he had a problem going up that hill and I had to go around him, which I felt like cost me some time. And, uh, I pull off the track and I'm like, I was really disappointed. And I was like, man, I feel like sh- shit that time, you know? And uh, I was thinking how oh, maybe they'll let me redo it. Cause you know, I had a guy broke in the middle of the trail that I had to go around or whatever. And I remembered him saying something about that in the driver's meeting, but yeah, then I'm pulling off the track and everybody's all excited and they're holding up a number two. I'm like, there's no way, <laughs> you know? And, uh, yeah, sure enough. I, I, I beat Kyle by like, you know, two tenths of a second or something. I mean, it was nothing, but, uh, it was good enough and it held all the way through power hour, which I couldn't believe either. So yeah, it's pretty cool to have, you know, Cody and I take off side by side. Well, the pictures are awesome. It's kind of yeah. cool to, to, to see, you know, brothers side by side, leaving the line together. That's 
I mean, that's a pretty, pretty sweet ass pictures. I hope you guys framed them. Oh yeah. I mean, it would have been sweet had it, we've been taking off, you know, fourth and you know, third and fourth together, or fifth and sixth or whatever. Yeah, but no, absolutely. Do is, is pretty incredible. I mean, like I said, getting ready for this whole deal, it, it reminded me of 2016. And I even said something to Cody when we were getting ready because 2016 was the first year that we raced the, we kind of switched from just locally racing uh, side-by-sides to race in a national series, the GNCC series. And getting ready that year, everything, it felt like it was so last minute and we were just working our asses off and finished the cars the night before we had to leave to go to Florida And we go out there and we kind of felt unprepared and we had no idea how we were going to do. And uh, I had a bad race. I ended up breaking, but Cody won. And we're like, holy shit, you know, he he freaking won this thing. And then Cody went on that year and had a a kick-ass year. I had an awful year. I broke down, I think, uh, four out of the six races. But uh, Cody won three and Kyle won three. And Cody ended up winning the championship that year in in the Yeg C1 Pro class. Then 2017, it came down to Cody and I at the last race for who was going to win the championship. Whoever beat the other was was going to win it, you know, and we're racing along with Kyle again. We ended up hitting at the top of a hill when I was trying to make a pass on Cody and broke a front axle on mine. And I went on to not finish and finish second in the championship. Cody went on to win the race and win the title. 2018, um, I ended up winning that GNCC title. And Kyle finishing second. Uh, Cody had kind of an off year that year. And then, like I said, 19, we went into the work series and and tied for first. But I said to Cody, I guess I got off on a little bit of a tangent there, but uh, resume tangent. But no, I said to Cody when we were getting ready for KOH, I was like, dude, this feels exactly like when we were getting ready for GNCC the first year, you know, how we're just working our hands to the bone and, and feeling like we're getting nowhere, but the cars are getting a little more together every day. And, uh, then we go out and we, we kicked ass and it was great. And I was like, just imagine if we can go to KOH and, and do the same thing. How awesome would that be? You know? And even back in 16, we're thinking, oh yeah, that'd be awesome. But yeah, it's a pipe dream, you know, whatever, maybe we'll do good. I mean, we're hoping for top five to 10. Great. But then to go out and win was, was crazy. And then, Sure enough, same thing at KOH, you know, uh, here we are thinking like, oh man, it'd be awesome. But it's kind of like thinking it'd be awesome to go win the lottery. Uh, Of course, it's cool to think about, but then when it actually happens, you're like, surreal, man, are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, we literally came out here and won this thing our first try. And again, like it's kind of been that way since we switched to, national level racing in UTVs, we went to GNCC. And again, this goes back to there being two of us and we've got twice as good a shot as anybody else, because it seems like if he wins, it's like we both won. If I won, it's like we both won, you know, go to GNCC and we won the title all three years. We ran it, we went to works and, and we wanted our first shot out and, uh, went one, two, and then go to KOH and, and same thing. So stay tuned. Your talent tank isn't full yet. Do you know what the entire 2020 Ultra 4 Racing 4400 class King of the Hammers podium had in common? Brannick Motorsports Custom Machine. 
This small family-owned machine shop in Fort Wayne, Indiana, has been advancing off-road technology since 2003 by proud veteran owner Stan Haynes and his son Brandon, and a talent-heavy staff committed to pushing the motorsports performance envelope. If those names sound familiar, they should. Stan and Brandon have been off-road racers since before King of the Hammers was a thing, and both are pillars of Team Indiana. I'm always talking here on the talent tank about supporting those that support you. I'm struggling to think of a sanctioning body that Brandon hasn't supported in rock sports. Ultra 4, We Rock, Pro Rock, just off the top of my head. And I support these guys myself. My current daily driven pre-runner Chevy has numerous one-off custom pieces on it, from rear axle flanges to custom 5 8 inch lug nuts. I sent the crew at Brandon my ideas, and they made them a reality. Between the Brannick lines of Forge 4340 axle shafts all the way to their custom billet 300M shafts, Brannick has you covered with pretty much any custom axle shaft, any spline with no size or length restrictions. Need a rare oddball shaft for your Unimog? They have those as well. Sway bars, a large inventory of rod ends, big and small. They're amazing specialized lightweight racing brakes and unit bearings and numerous bolt patterns onto their line of custom carrier bearings and U-joints in 1480 and 1550 flavors. And I about missed mentioning their amazing milled out aluminum suspension components, 7075 billet aluminum links and trailing arms. If you haven't seen these, you're missing out on some very aesthetically pleasing pieces of hardware. Brannick prides themselves on quality, service, and value, proudly making parts that wear the Made in the USA moniker. No matter if it's for your daily driven Jeep, Toyota, Chevy Pre-Runner, or something more serious like your Rock Bouncer, Ultra 4, or Trophy Truck, you're covered with a call to Indiana. Did I mention I've met a land speed racing team that runs Brannock axles at over 300 miles an hour? Yeah. To ensure you eliminate your downtime while recreational wheeling this weekend, reduce your time in the shop turning wrenches on repairs, or looking to put your race car on the podium, call Stan and Brandon at Brannock, 260-467-1808, or on the web at BrannockMotorsports.com. Brannock is a full-service machine shop that can handle everything from one-off to production runs. If they don't have it, they can make it. Now, back to the show. So your race, though, when he when Cody radioed that he was out, he's out of the race. You know, you're you're barely you're barely even going. How yeah. did the how did the rest of your race go? I know you and Kyle battled you know quite a bit, but what other issues did you have? Because that's that, and you said it earlier, like you know you're you're you know an inch from wrecking, you're a split seconds from missing something, you're so close to making errors here and there. So there's obviously some talent plays in, but also everyone will say there's also a lot of luck. You've got to have luck on your side and your competitor has to have luck against them. Did you, you change any tires that day? Did you winch any, how clean was your race? Uh, I was really fortunate. So my co-pilot was Chad Hughes, who I think this was his sixth time racing that race. He'd always raced it on his own. Chad, has tons and tons of experience. He's a little older um, and very calm, mellow guy, but phenomenal rock crawler. So, you know, Cody and I kind of had a plan that, hey, you know, we're going to help each other kind of through this race after we qualified one, two. It's like, you know, if we have the opportunity to kind of help, you know, help each other get through because Chad knew the trail so well. And Cody's co-pilot was a buddy of ours, Cody Taylor who was Cody's co-pilot at GNCC and, and he's one of the, um, designers over at S3 who does our chassis, but he, he's also very experienced rock crawler, not necessarily in a UTV, but in bigger buggies. Um, so 
Chad knew the lines and had rock crawling experience. Cody Taylor had rock crawling experience and Cody and I uh, could give it gas and keep from running into things. So we kind of had the plan that, you know, we're going to follow each other and just kind of pick our way through this race and do the best we can. Well, then I hear over the radio that Cody's out right away and i'm like well chad i guess we're on our own today plan b yeah it's gonna be a long day but here we go from that point i think we got into pit one and kyle and guthrie are behind us you know and guthrie stops for fuel and kyle and i kept going well kyle and i just battled and we got i pulled a little bit of a gap but we got to cougar buttes and i missed the entrance and so we had to backtrack and go all the way back to the beginning of it, you know, because we couldn't obviously get into the trail right in the middle of it. So we backtrack and Kyle had passed us right there. Well, we follow Kyle through Cougar Buttes and the rest of the way, all the way through the end of lap one, we're, we're going back and forth and uh, we're not back and forth, but we're, you know, I'm following him. Um, we went down back door right behind him and come into the start shoot uh, right behind him and take off. Well, we get back to pit one and Kyle goes all the way down to pit. And I'm like, what the hell is he doing? Why did, why did he pit here? You know, cause he, I think he was on the f- same fuel strategy that I was. How many gallons does your car hold or how many miles can you go on yours? Miles can you go is, is good question. Still, right? But <laughs> they hold 10 gallons. Um, we pitted at pit one B. So we did most of the first desert loop. We didn't think we could make it down back to main pit, we might have, but it had been really close. So we decided to get fuel at uh, 1B. And then. Now you know, would you have made it? Like, how many gallons did you take at 1B? I don't know how many gallons I took, but my gauge said I still had a quarter tank. I think I'd have made it, but I'd have been on fumes. And my luck, I would have got to back door and gone down, and the fuel pickup wouldn't have picked up fuel and I'd have right. rolled or something. Who, who knows? But I had to get gas one more time anyway. And, and one is a pretty fast pit, you know, it's not like two where you've got to, uh, go all the way down there, you know, mm-hmm. but even though I did get fuel at two B, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so Kyle goes down there and I'm like, what the hell, you know, we just got fuel. I don't know what he's doing. So he goes down there and, and I took back off into the desert and, uh, had no idea where he was. Well, I guess he had come back in right behind me and he had gone down there because he had a, when they were going down back door, Kyle and I, for some reason, decided to be safe, and we both tethered down back door. Um, even though I'd pre-run it, you know, probably I'd gone down it a solid 15 times and never had an issue, you know. But we decided to play it super safe and and hooked the rope up to the back and went down it. So I guess when Kyle was doing that, they noticed that his transmission was leaking fluid out of it. And so, but simultaneously his radio had also malfunctioned. And so he had to go down to the end of the pit to tell his crew to have transmission fluid ready for him at pit two. (laughs) And so, uh, we, we passed him right there. Well, we get all the way to the lake bed and you know, how long that lake bed is. Well, we're, we're wide open across it running about 95 and, you know, I'm taking this time to get some food and sip of water and all this stuff. And, uh, we get up to, you know, you start heading up that ridge right after that. And it makes a sharp, uh, like 180 degree, uh, to the right and start going up this really rocky ridge. And Chad's like, Holy shit, Kyle is right behind us. I'm like, there's no way he followed us through all that dust. Cause we were hauling ass, you know, but 
he, he did. <laughs> so, uh, we get into that section and I remember saying to my, to Chad, I was like, dude, it is so dusty and so rough right here. There is no way Kyle followed us through that, you know, at least not right on us. We had to pull some time. Well, we get into aftershock and the only real mistake we made all day was we decided to switch a line, just going around a small rock at the last second and I wedged us right between two rocks and we had about an inch to go forward and back. And (laughs) so, you know, we're at first, I kind of buried us in the sand. So now we've got an inch to go back and forth to try to turn out of this thing. And we're buried down in some ruts. And so I start to kind of freak out and Chad like just smacked me and said, just, just stop, you know? And so we back up and barely turned and tried to turn it back. But of course we're buried and, and, you know, you need to move a little bit to get your steering free. And so we just sit there and Austin powered it for about five minutes, but Kyle never came. And we're like, man, I, I don't, we couldn't have pulled that much time on him in the dust. Well, then we get to pit two and they said, Hey, Kyle hadn't come through and we don't know what's going on. Well, of course, obviously we've all seen the video of his crazy ordeal, you know, and right at the point where I said, dude, there's no way Kyle is following us through this. Well, he had hit a ledge and of course rolled his car right there. And that's where there just so happened to be two helicopters filming us at the same time and got the whole thing where it rolled over him and, you know, uh, he tried to, tried to get it and it ran him over and he was going through there and broke his foot and all that good stuff. So, uh, yeah, it was gnarly. That is a gnarly little video clip. I, so gnarly. I think, uh, even like monster energy just released, uh, like a recap video in the last five or seven days that I just recently saw that has that clip in there. Yeah, it's crazy. It really is. I mean, and it it shows you how unforgiving this race is, you know, and how brutal it is. I mean, how could you capture it better than that right there, you know? But at that point, you know, we got a couple miles from the pit and they said, Kyle is still nowhere to be found. So we backed it way, way, way down, probably at least 50% and just kind of cruised through the rest of the race, to be honest. It was, it was, completely trouble free. I mean, Chad knew every single line, you know, and we didn't miss a single one of it. So, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of at the point where I get to these rocks gardens and I go cross-eyed, you know, but he doesn't, he, he do everything. And he had been out there pre-running on his dirt bike in the middle of the night, the night before, you know, even just trying to make sure he knew every single spot. So, and so there was kind of never really a spot during the race, you know, at least after lap one, where you knew, you knew your car won on the road. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And you know, when we got to the pits, they said, Hey, you know, especially when we got to pit one uh, B, when we got fuel, they said, dude, on the tracker, you and Kyle are and and you know, Kyle and I pulled into the pits at the same time. Our crews were right there by each other. So we pull in and we're fueling up at the same time. And, uh, they said, man, y'all are like 10 miles ahead of everybody else. So I knew that we had a good lead. And even after time adjustment, I thought like, man, we'd have to, somebody would have to make up some serious time, you know? So after Kyle was out, I knew all we had to really do was, was be smooth and consistent and not get stuck, you know? And of course, being the first one through the rocks, uh, I didn't have a lot of bottleneck. I didn't have any bottlenecks or carnage to deal with. So that was clearly a huge advantage as well. When you cross the finish line, anything special there? (sighs) Man, well, we still didn't know we had won because Dave came over to talk to us and he's like, 
Okay, well, we already checked. Y'all hit all the VCPs, and we're pretty sure you won, but hold on. And then, yeah, he confirmed it, and, man, we just lost it. It was crazy. You know, going through the finish line, we didn't know if we had won or not, but we knew we were the first ones to finish, so we were already celebrating, of course. But uh, we were just happy we had finished at that point. Yeah, I mean, when he told us, man, it was it was unbelievable. Yeah, it was it was really crazy. Yeah, congratulations! I mean, that's got to be a great feeling. And I assume your brother was sitting there. You know, your parents are at the the finish line. Everybody that oh, yeah. they, they'd all crowded. Yeah, they knew. <laughs> yeah, no, it was nuts. It really was. Um, you know, Ken Am did such an awesome recap video of the whole the whole thing. You know, starting with our pre running all the way up through uh, the end of the race. You know, through for the whole team, not not me, but it was really really cool. It really was. I'll need to. I'm gonna grab that uh, the link to that video and add it to the show notes for this. Is it, it is yeah. a good video. I do need to throw that in there. So we're outside of KOH over your, you've got, now you have this huge target on your back for next year. What's the future hold for you? What's uh what's this year? Where are you going to race this year? I know you're trying to race a lot local being local to Texas. What's the game plan? Well, you know, I, let me caveat that with when we get to go back to racing, when we get this country open back up, when we get to, you know, walk into a bar and say, yeah, open up a tab. I can't wait for that. Like, I can't wait for them to say, like, yeah, keep it open. I can't wait for that. Dude, you and everyone else, that's for sure. No matter what your point of view is on this whole thing, I think everybody's point of view is they can't wait for it to be over, you know? Yeah, you know, so so for this year, we've got two series that we're concentrating on, which is the Work Series and the Texplex Series. Uh, Texplex is a facility just west of Dallas and Midlothian that is probably one of the most badass places you could ever go if you're into off-road and especially UTVs. They've got one of the coolest UTV tracks you could ever imagine, you know, and and coming from a motocross background like we are, side-by-sides have either gone to dirt bike slash ATV motocross tracks that weren't built for them. The jumps were too big and gnarly and the corners were tight and everything else and small, you know, Or they race on the truck short course tracks, which, you know, they're kind of too small and underpowered for. Well, Texplex has what's basically a scaled up motocross track. And it is some of the most fun and competitive racing I've ever done in my entire life. You know, they're trying to go back to racing actually next weekend, uh, May 2nd. So we're really, really excited about that. They put together a kick-ass series and they've got huge payouts. I mean, to win the pro UT or the pro turbo class championship is like $40,000 to win the pro naturally aspirated class is another $40,000. They pay every race. I mean, it's, it's just awesome, you know, and they've got a a top of the line facility. They've got uh, about 30 miles of off-road track there, you know, that caters to trucks and, and Jeeps and stuff. I mean, they've got a full on, professional dirt bike motocross track they've got a vet track and they've got the utv track they've got all kinds of stuff i've been invited up there on so many occasions initially when they were first putting together like that pre-runner track like the you know the raptor track or whatever you want to call it and every single time like we were either like truck is loaded on the trailer and it's (sighs) raining in north texas like not even just raining just like dumping cats and dogs amounts of water and I'm like, I'm not going to mud. And then they didn't cancel it. And that happened, I think either two or three times that ha- happened. Like we were going, we were planning on going. And then it's like, I think the last time I threw in the towel, it was like, okay, I want to go, but it really looks like it's going to rain. So I'm not going to get like my hopes up. And then it rained. Yeah. And 
So I still haven't made it, but yeah, I mean, on when you look online at their facilities, it really does look like an amazing place. It's just, it, you know, it's about what, halfway between Dallas and Fort Worth, but south, south yeah. of, the, uh, of Texplex. I mean, literally, it's called the Texplex. Uh, what is that called? The Metroplex? Is that what you guys call it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I just remember I drive through there's a radio station to be like, flex your plex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what They're, channel that was, but I just it always stuck with me. They're putting together an event for December, which I think is going to be freaking awesome, man. It's kind of like a Le Mans style endurance race. Um, this first one is going to be a 12 hour race and it's three man teams, one car. Uh, it's going to be about a 20 to 30 mile loop. And 12 hours start at 7 a.m. and end at 7 p.m., which in December, obviously, it gets dark over here around four. So you'll be starting in the dark and finishing in the dark. And I think that it's going to be a, a big payout to win it. Um, they're going to have a couple different classes. It's it's going to be really, really cool. I think it could be the start of uh, a really big, awesome event, you know, because I don't know of any other endurance racing for UTVs that's anything like that you know the only other thing you can compare it to is is obviously uh on-road pavement car you know endurance style racing so I think it's it's pretty cool thing they have going over there I've done a ton of that on-road stuff and we've done some 24s where split between four drivers doing a 24 yeah it it sounds like a wonderfully fun idea but once you get to about that 16 to 20 some hour in you're like, this effing sucks. There is no, <laughs> like when you're in the car for, you know, two, three hours and then you get out and you, it's not long enough to be able to like fall asleep and get rest. So you're yeah. sitting there and then you got to pit for the other guy who's, and you know, you keep the car out on the track and then you still get in. And when you get back in for that second stint, you're just like, oh my, I don't want to be in here. I already <laughs> hurt, you know, cause your body is, what is it? Uh, I don't even, I can't even think the word of, you know, like after you've worked out, you know, like the acid in your muscles, like yes, it, yes. you start to solidify, like your muscles are not <laughs> as loose as they need to be on that second step. No, that and really sounds cool. I got to run that by some of my buddies because we keep talking about how w- the guys I road raced with, uh, like we don't, we got rid of our cars a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, multiple guys had, had kids and maybe that's the next thing for us. So I have, I do have some questions on that. It's funny you say that because that Texplex idea started off as a 24 hour race. Oh, really? and we're kind of pumped up on it, but we said better start with 12. <laughs> well, you could, you could do a 24. You just do 12, 12 on Saturday, 12 on Sunday. Oh, that sounds even worse. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> or, well, I mean, I think like what 24 hours of lemons did, they would have the, the, the wrapper, right. They would do a 20, a 20 true 24 hour race, but most of the time it was a 16 hour race or a 15 hour race where they raced eight hours one day and seven hours on Sunday. Right, 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 right. And, and then you had a chance overnight to socialize and party and work on your junk. So, yeah. Yeah. So sounds fun either way, but so being is immersed in off-road is immersed in the dirt bike scene, the quad scene, and then now the UTV scene we've talked about, you know, and I agree with you. I think UTVs is the next blowing up. It's the fastest growing class at King of Hammers. It's the fastest growing class in the nation. The low barrier of entry is very, very attractive to a guy who can walk in and make a payment on a car or a bike or a desert jet ski or whatever we want to call them. But then again, you know, that the ultimately you find out that the car is the cheap part. It's 
all the parts, all the effort, all the gas, all the sleeping, you know, uh, uh, hotels or whatever it is, or camping or whatever that, that equals based on all of that and unpacking all of that, what advice would you have for a guy that watched King of the Hammers this past year, saw this guy that had never been out to that event before and then signs up and wins it? Obviously you've got years and years and years behind you that helped you win that. But what would you give advice to a guy that's brand new to it? He's sitting in an office somewhere and he's like, man, that looks like fun. I would like to do that. Man, it's funny you say that because I actually kind of, I spend a lot of my time answering people's questions, you know, when they reach out to me, whether it's through Instagram or Facebook or text or whatever it is. And I always try to give people the best advice I possibly can, you know, whether it's, it's how to build a car or yeah, don't, don't buy that. That's a waste of money. Get this, you know, this is much more important. Everybody thinks, Oh, I need to get a new side by side and it's at 200 horsepower. I need to make it 300, you know, like, no, get your suspension and all of that stuff first, you know, learn to drive it. The main thing I would say is just don't get in a hurry trying to be the fastest guy out there, you know, within, you know, a couple months, take your time and really enjoy the process of kind of coming up through the ranks. You know, it, it, people get into a side by side or any kind of car and they have all of a sudden this roll cage confidence and think that they're a professional driver, you know, and they end up either crashing and breaking it and wrecking it or just getting frustrated in general and, and quitting after a short amount of time when they could have kind of just pumped the brakes a little bit, you know, and enjoyed their time just racing in general, as opposed to trying to be the fastest guy out there immediately, you know? Do you think that social media has a play in there or has a hand in that? I feel like it does. I feel like there is this undue level of pressure put on anyone racing that social media puts on, like projected onto themselves that I need to be X level. If I enter this race, I need to do X a level of good. And if I don't even finish, then I look bad. You know, and, and and it's not only my race was bad, but now I feel like that reflects poorly on my reputation of bad. And so do you think there's some of that? Uh, yeah, that even does that to me. <laughs> I hate social media because of that. You know, it, it it puts so much pressure on you. But, you know, social media obviously has its place. It's, it's an amazing thing for the world and it's an awful thing for the world for sure. But uh, I think it does more good than it does bad. But you know, like you said, yes, there's that cool factor on social media where everybody feels like they have to let the entire world know what's going on with their lives at every point. And nobody wants to share bad, you know, nobody wants to say, Hey, you know, I, I got 10th at this race, but damn, I had fun. You know, they all want to say I got first. And so I think maybe there's a little bit of pressure there that's added to people, even if it's just subconscious, you know, but I think, again, it goes back to this roll cage mentality that you're indestructible in these things, you know, which obviously they are safer, but than a dirt bike or a quad, but, uh, you know, everything has its limit. Yeah, it absolutely does. Including egos. Yeah, there you go. And yeah, it's usually but, your own, right? We're, we are our <laughs> own worst critics, right? We're our, our own hardest critics. For sure. Like I said, I mean, going into KOH this year, nobody had really any expectations for us, but had we not won, like 
we would have been disappointed, you know, even though we didn't expect to win or, or, and damn sure shouldn't have expected to win. Uh, had we not, we, we'd have been disappointed, you know, but it would have driven us to do better next year, obviously. So talking about next year, you're already talking about KOH 2021. What do you think is going to change for you there? Same cars or you guys got to build new cars between now and then? You know, we thought about building new cars, but these are still in such good shape. Even Cody's after running uh, UTV and 4400. I mean, the thing's still just fine. Needs new body panels. So that's about it. So we're, we learned a lot as far as our setup, you know, and we're going to make some adjustments there and we're going to do some testing starting, you know, in the summertime with some ideas that we have that we think are going to take things kind of to the next level. We're thinking that we're going to try to run the UTV and 4400 race. I don't know if we're going to try to do that in the same cars or different ones that we build specifically for the 4400 race that are kind of a little more built than, than what we would run in the UTV race. Um, but, you know, Cody's worked so damn good this year that I don't know that we really need to change much. But that's kind of the plan. Um, we'll see this uh COVID-19 thing kind of put a damper on, on everybody's, uh, willingness to, to support everything, you know, just because businesses have had a lot of cutbacks and, and who knows what's going to happen. But the plan is to go out there and, uh, you know, make the changes we did and try to defend that UTV title and then, uh, go out there and, and really just try to finish the 4,400 race. I mean, do as well as we can, obviously, but, um, the main goal is obviously to try to finish that one. Awesome, man. First off, Hunter, thanks for coming on. Thank, just absolutely. Thank you for carrying me in this conversation because <laughs> I'm a total noob when it comes to, like having UTV discussions. Uh, I, I mean, you, 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 I'm handicapped. That's, I think that's the easiest yeah. way to say it. Um, thank you, man. What a great conversation with you, man. You're a good dude. Fun to talk to. It's cool. To, really cool to see you win. Really cool. Once I started hearing your story about how you won, really cool to hear some of Cody's story. Uh, and what, you know, how his race went and then ultimately why he ended up in the 4,400 race and here and how that went. That was, that was pretty badass, man. <laughs> yeah. And when he first told me, I was like, dude, you're nuts. There's, why would you do that? You know, you're going to get your ass run over. And he's like, yeah, I know. I'm pretty worried about that. But, you know, I think when he, it started off as a joke, you know, there, I, I had flown out that next morning, um, cause I had to get back here to work, honestly. And, you know, and, and kind of a joke at this point, but that's the way we do all the racing. Cody, Cody drives all our stuff out there and I fly because I've got to stay here and run the business. But, you know, I had flown out and Cody was having breakfast, uh, over at, at the Curry's the next morning. And Cody and some of the guys from Can-Am were kind of joking, like, Oh, why don't you just sign up for the 4,400 race? And, Apparently Cody didn't really take it as a joke. So he went and started checking to see if it would be legal, you know, and, and got to talking with some of the guys from ultra four. And I guess they were actually pretty pumped on it. So on the idea, you know, just because it would make noise, you know, if a UTV actually did well in that class, it made waves. <laughs> it wasn't just noise, yeah. it made waves. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so, and who knows what he started? I mean, you know, I, it, for sure next year, there'll be at least two UTVs in there, if not a couple more, you know? So yeah, it's funny because it kind of started as a joke and, and we were all kind of concerned for his safety up until he finished. But so that said, <laughs> I was in the middle of like thanking you for coming on and kind of closing out. And then you, you brought up Casey Curry yep. and would there be like some Dakar convincing in your future? 
like g- going with Curry over to Dakar, or is that something that would ever land on yours and your brother's radar to go race Dakar? Oh God, that would be a dream. You know, that's kind of Casey's program. You know, he puts that together. Um, I, I believe anyway, kind of from the outside looking in, you know, we, we didn't really know Casey until at KOH actually it was the first time we met him and him and his, uh, his family and crew were just overly welcoming to mainly that, that week that after I had left, you know, Cody's co-pilot left Cody Taylor and my co-pilot Chad Hughes actually stayed to race with Cody in the 4,400 race. But, you know, everybody had left minus, uh, a couple of buddies from home, actually just two of them <laughs> that stayed with Cody there that were going to drive our stuff home. And so the Curry's really stayed and or let Cody pit with them and, and helped us out a ton and uh let him pit with them you know under their tent and you know helped him out with some parts and all that stuff and feeding him and and everything but uh yeah i mean the car would obviously be a dream i can't imagine how expensive that program is to put together if it ever happens i mean yeah it'd it'd be amazing but uh all right i I just throwing it out there you know maybe steps we'll try mexico next maybe (laughs) (laughs) that's a little closer Did uh, you or I leave anything unsaid about this whole, uh, this whole venture tonight? No, I think, I think we covered it. We covered some miles, man. We covered some good miles. Based on the script you sent me, I think we did. (laughs) (laughs) It's not scripted. It's like an, it's an outline to like, make sure we don't get too far off, (laughs) which we didn't, you know, we bounced around a lot though, but Hey, that's just, that's how I roll, man. Hunter, congratulations on your win back in February. I'm excited about the target that's on your back for next year at King of the Hammers. I think uh, you, I think you and your family uh, should be too. That's a that's an awesome target to have to wear. I think that's cool as hell. And to hear that you and your brother are going to run uh, 4400 as well. That's another amazing juicy nugget that I think's uh, <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna have a, a lot of people in the in the side by side community holding holding a. Uh, torches for you and then you're going to have a bunch of people holding pitchforks yeah yeah i was fixing to say i think you're either on one side or the other you're either excited about it or we think we're insane and ruining the 4400 class i'm not sure but who who has more people on that side but uh no i mean it's it's cool i mean they're they're off-road vehicles what's the difference you know all right well hey thank you for coming on i appreciate it yeah awesome awesome to meet you can't wait to meet you in person all right Yep. Same to you. Thank you very much for having me. All right. We are out. I hope you guys really liked this episode. It was a really fun one to make as usual. I really have to thank my, uh, my three partners on this custom splice. Those guys, if you need anything for off-road recovery or even on-road recovery or any projects, please hit Todd and his crew up at a uh, custom splice.com. Give them a call machining. Oh my gosh. Branding machines, Stan and Brandon, those guys over there in Fort Wayne, Indiana, they do it all. If they can't make it, I don't know who can. If if you need it made, they will do it. Hit those guys up. They are a big supporter of the Talent Tank, and I, uh, I value their involvement. And then last but not least, Magnitude Performance. Jason Yode and company, they're in Nacogdoches, Texas, and everything that they've done for, for the Talent Tank and getting behind and supporting this uh this venture and this project and everything, give them, give them a call for your suspension needs. These guys do magic with Springs and then the parent company, mass motorsports engines, man, they have uh they have engines unlocked, hand built, lots of horsepower. They're your guys. Thanks guys. We'll catch you next week.
Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the Talent Tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the Talent Tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.